0: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we are at the 2023 uh, installment of Acton University. And with me right now is Dr. Frank Beckwith, Professor of Philosophy and Church State Studies at Baylor University. He's the author of several books, including Never Doubt Thomas, How the Catholic Aquinas Can Be Both Evangelical and Protestant, and Taking Rights Seriously, R-I-T-E-S. Law, politics, and the reasonableness of faith, and he's got uh, more than a hundred other books, academic articles, reference entries, and more. Frank, good to see you again. Face, to good face. to see you too. Yeah. Let's. Uh, your topic here is on natural law, natural theology, and the contrast between Catholic and Protestant. Mm-hmm. Why don't you give us a little bit of the historical background here? Uh, Catholics are associated with natural law. Protestants often thought, no. Yeah. So. That, how that happen?
1: That's the sort of conventional narrative. Yeah. Uh, I think the conventional narrative is actually wrong, and that's the burden of, of, of my talk here in sure. Acton. But the way it's usually depicted is that the Catholic Church, and most prominently in the figure of St. Thomas Aquinas, mm-hmm. holds that the human mind, through the exercise of reason, can know the moral law. And you have some Protestants, certainly not all, will come back and say, well then, what's the point of Scripture? uh, What role does God actually play in our knowledge of morality? And I think there's a reason why they've misunderstood what the Church teaches, because that's not what the Church teaches. Right. right. Uh, What I think has a lot to do with separation over time, you have... Different ecclesial communities that have developed created their own traditions, and oftentimes will not have not read the actual sources themselves. So, if you, for example, read Aquinas uh, in the section of the Summa Theologica where he deals with natural law, one of the things that stands out at least to me is how modest it is mm-hmm. you know he's does, he doesn't make sort of elaborate claims that you can sort of get every jot and tittle from the natural law yeah. but he also gives an account of why people get things wrong morally and that has to do with self-interest culture habituation the emotions yeah And then he also explains why we need special revelation. We need special revelation because we can't get the truth about our eternal fate or what we're ordered towards, the beatific vision, just from the natural law. So I think that once you read Aquinas and what the church teaches, it it seems that a lot of the concerns raised by Protestant critics are actually not only anticipated, but Considered by Aquinas to be integral to our understanding of the natural yeah. law
0: yeah what uh, thing that strikes me uh, uh, about this is you mentioned the idea of separate ecclesial communities working within their own tradition, not taking seriously the primary sources used by the others um, so uh, Somebody like Karl Barth in the 20th century, the giant, yeah. big, biggest name in Protestant theology in the 20th century. How could he miss Thomas Aquinas? The footnotes in the church dogmatics yeah. are enormous. Uh, they book-length themselves sometimes. But how, how is it? Because he was challenged on this, as you know. Yeah. Uh, how does he miss it? Yeah, it's the, it's the
1: same reason why we all miss things. So I think about my own journey back to the Catholic Mm -hmm. Church. I had been away from the church for nearly three decades, from a teenager till my mid-forties. And I began reading things that I had read when I was younger. And I thought, how did I miss it? (laughs) And I I just think it has, I I, I can't fully explain it. I do think that uh, we're deeply influenced by what we consider to be plausible, that is to say, our background beliefs about what is reasonable affect the way we read others. Yeah. Also, I think someone like Bart, who was a genius and a giant, uh, his acquaintance or how he read Aquinas and the church had a lot to do with what was the dominant way that Catholics taught priests in the seminaries in those days. It was mm. through a method called the manualist they sort of had these very sort of technical, almost overly rationalistic approaches to moral and natural theology. And so it's not entirely the fault of Protestants right, right. That, that that they sometimes read it wrong. It's because some of the representations of it from people in the church weren't very yeah. good either.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's say... How much can the unregenerate, the unbaptized human know about God hmm. apart from apart from special revelation, the scriptures?
1: Well, according to Aquinas, we can know that there exists a self-existent being who has underived existence, who is responsible for. The creation mm-hmm. of everything mm-hmm. and that's pretty minimal I yeah. mean what what Aquinas said I mean he in the first part of the Summa he's got and also in the Summa Contra Gentiles long sections where he he discovers uh, a, a first cause and then from there he articulates all these attributes but virtually all the attributes are negative you know god is infinite well that's not finite right
0: right, <laughs> right right
1: uh god is um the fullness of being it's he's that which lacks nothing right that's a kind of negative yeah, yeah so so and but he admits that things like the doctrine of the trinity that jesus died for our sins these are things that we could never know through natural uh revelation or natural theology he also points out that virtually nobody I maybe mean, that with the exception of a few people really have the time or the resources or the intellect to work through these arguments right. and okay. that when people come to believe they come to believe as a result of god's grace and so you could have somebody let's say who is a philosophy professor who accepts all of aquinas's arguments comes to the conclusion that there exists a god but that person does not have faith. Yeah. They don't have they're just simply assenting to the logic of an argument. Whereas when somebody comes to believe, they're moved by faith to assent. Yeah. And that's it's it's more like, you know, to use an analogy, faith is more like falling in love yeah. <laughs> yeah. than yeah, it good. is a syllogism. So I mean imagine if you treated your faith like oh you treated your marriage like you treated your faith. That is, 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 supposing you're overly rationalistic and you woke up every morning and you rehearsed all the arguments (laughs) why you you got married. Well, you ain't going to stay married very long, (laughs) right? Because because there's more to marriage than just
0: rehearsing arguments. And that's true of faith as well. I've uh, wondered, and this is part of the conversation, if a theologian doesn't accept that all human beings... By virtue of being created in God's image and likeness, if he doesn't accept that they have access to knowledge of God, apart from special revelation, how does he find common ground yeah. with the
1: uh, non-believer? I, I think it's very difficult. Uh, I, I, I do think that the theologians that do hold this view uh, do so because they hold to a view about human nature and the effects of the fall. Okay. But I also think they, they're not reading Scripture very carefully. So think, for example, of Acts chapter 17, which I love to use. It's one of my favorite sections of, of Scripture. Yeah. First half of it, Paul and Silas are preaching in a synagogue. They don't have to make any arguments for God because they have in common the Jewish tradition. right, right, And so they're appealing to the scriptures and making the argument that Jesus is the Messiah. Then they go to Athens. And in Athens, Paul's on Mars Hill, and he says, I've been walking around your city, and I came across this altar to an unknown God. Let me tell you about the unknown God. It is he in whom we live and have our being. So he, he kind of says that there's this the true God is He that has underived existence, that brought everything into being, and then He moves to, and I'll tell you that He has revealed Himself in a certain person who yeah. was crucified, and and there you have, I think, in in a microcosm, the the, the appeal to in the fir- in the first part to special revelation, namely the Old Testament, when He's talking to His uh, Jewish. Uh, critics, And then later on, when he has a different audience, he wants to say that there is an individual named Jesus who is the Son of God. Well, what does that mean and right. if, if there's no in-common view of God? And he articulates that in the first part of his preaching.
0: Yeah, and, and he quotes uh, from pagan uh, poets uh, yeah. in that same passage, trying to find common ground with these Athenian philosophers. We're talking about the knowledge of God. And natural law also plays into the idea of uh, ethics—not mm-hmm. uh, our not only our knowledge of God, but our knowledge of our duty. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what does the Church teach about natural law as it uh, relates to our behavior, how we we ought to live? Yeah. So the Church teaches that. Uh,
1: all human beings have the capacity to know the moral law. Uh, And it's pretty basic. It's just things like, be fair. (laughs) Don't kill the innocent. Um, uh, Take care of your family. Don't abandon your children. Get along with your neighbors. I mean, there's a sort of the... In fact, Aquinas talks about uh, the initial precepts of the natural law. And they're pretty basic. And now from there... Uh, we have to reason. So if we want to take care of our children and live in community, uh, something like marriage would have to arise mm-hmm. as an institution. And so, that, so of course, m- people that do not share our faith clearly see these things. So one of the ways that I help my students at Baylor to try to understand this is I've created this... Um, little scenario which i call the 10 bogus rules and i get i give them <laughs> i give them 10 like outrageous laws and one of them is uh, whenever somebody is prosecuted at a criminal trial guilt or innocence will be determined by flipping a coin <laughs> and the other is parents have an absolute right to abandon their children for any reason they want the punishment for murder is a round trip Uh, First-class vacation to Las Vegas. And I I try to draw out the natural law from that. Hold
0: it it there. We'll come back and continue the conversation. My guest, Dr. Frank Beckwith, Baylor University. We're talking about the natural law, natural theology, and understanding the Protestant critique. I'm Al Creston. Good afternoon. I'm Al Creston with me Dr. Frank Beckwith professor of philosophy and church state studies at Baylor University. We've been looking at the que- questions surrounding natural law, natural theology and the historically the different approaches uh, of Catholics and Protestants before the break you were going over the 10 outrageous oh, yeah. laws. Yeah, so. so I have I have this little um, kind of
1: scenario that I Give my students called the t- I call the ten bo- bogus rules, or sometimes I call them the, the ten fall laws.
0: Okay.
1: and they're just they're laws that are so outrageous that everyone viscerally knows that they're unjust, right? So one of them is guilt or innocence is decided by a flip of a coin. Um, it's okay. Uh, the government may pass post facto laws, that is, laws <laughs> that are passed to condemn things that have already been done. When they really- <laughs> and and so. I tell my students that that the reason why you have that immediate um, kind of not even deliberate it's it's almost like a um, uh, instantaneous uh, seeing of the wrongness of it is that's the natural law
0: mm-hmm. that is
1: it's working and it's it's like the other aspects of or the powers that God has given to us they're they're they are they they are we are not like Born with an inherent knowledge of the natural law, but we're born with the equipment to learn it. Yeah. and so yeah. once we encounter something in the world that fits, let's say one of the ten bogus rules, we immediately sense there's something wrong. Little children, right? Like you know, they're dividing up uh, a pie or they're playing a game and one of them cheats. And the you know, this, let's say it's a couple of five year olds and five. You can't do that. That's wrong. Yeah. Right. Well, how do they know that? Right. I mean, right. You could say they learned it, but uh, I think it's just part of this kind of equipment
0: yes, that yes. God
1: has given us. And you know, and it also turns out that when people try to violate the natural law, they always try to come up with reasons why it's okay. It's okay, which, to which so it's it's you know the old adage that um, what is it that. Uh, I don't know if I an old adage. I'm so old, I don't even remember it. I think it's uh, something like um, hypocrisy is the compliment that vice to, pays to virtue. Right. So something right. like something that. Like, yes. So in a sense, you know, the person that tries to rationalize what they're doing or lives inconsistently with what they know is, is right, or they try to put on a mask, which is what hypocrisy really means, right? Mm-hmm. They, they appear to, like, really believe something when they don't. It indicates that they kind of already know
0: what the truth is. Yeah. Yeah. So. Let's take take a question then. Yeah. Abortion. Yeah. It it is it's amazing to me that uh, America has lived with abortion as a uh, you know an acceptable public uh, uh, act. Yeah. For fifty years, and yet most people still sense. There's something wrong there. Mm-hmm. They may they may be unwilling to pass laws to end abortion, but virtually everybody thinks that it's a, it's a tragedy that there's a necessary yeah. evil. There are some ideologues who try to yeah. avoid that, but generally, don't you think that that? I, I
1: think that's. I, I was going to actually bring up the the example of abortion. I think yeah. it's a really good one. That it's interesting. Nobody. Uh, protests appendectomies, <laughs> right, right? Nobody right. says, you know, uh, we've had too many, uh, you know, appendectomies, uh, you know, uh, because of the, you know, we defend the sanctity of life. People would think that would be silly, right? Right, right. Uh, So it's interesting, you, people that typically defend the right to abortion, they agree with pro-lifers that it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent persons, but what they, they, they claim is that the fetus is not a person. Right. And so right. in a weird way, by trying to make an argument to eliminate the fetus from the protection of our laws, it actually is, the person that says that is actually showing that they know the natural law. Right,
0: right. right. And
1: yeah. so every every time, uh, think about, this is another example I use in class. I ask my students, uh, supposing you um you heard that somebody had committed suicide and you would be devastated if it was a friend but what would be one of the first things that crossed your mind why did they do it yeah right but if you if somebody said to you oh i saw bob walking across campus you wouldn't say well why is he alive <laughs> in other words <laughs> right. like you wouldn't like you wouldn't try to come up with a reason to justify his living right you, you do want to understand why someone may have taken their own life, even if you believe it's unjustified. You want to know the reason, which means that you that the good of life yeah. is something to which we are ordered. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, these little things that we sort of take for granted is where you find the natural law. Uh, I think it's a mistake uh, for 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 people to think that the natural law is sort of this like Ten Commandments in your head that god gave you i think you can arrive at the ten commandments through reason but but the natural law is something that we recognize once we enter the world and begin exercising our judgments
0: Hmm. Uh, a little bit off base sure can you establish the uh the sabbath law
1: by reason uh probably well you know one way you could do it uh this is actually from uh supreme court precedent so there were uh, several cases the supreme court dealt with in the 1960s where people challenged uh sunday closing laws Mm -hmm. and they said it was a violation of the separation of church and state because everyone knows why sunday closing laws are there is to honor the christian sabbath but the attorneys for the states argued yeah that may have been the origin of it but you know people need a day off (laughs) <laughs> like they they need to relax and this is the way for the state yeah. to have a uniform day of rest because people need that to sort of re-energize yeah. their batteries and there's a kind of yeah, there's a kind of secular <laughs> argument for some kind of Sabbath. Yeah, very, right? good. So, very
0: good, very um, good. The um, oh yes, Abraham Abraham Kuyper, nineteenth century uh, Dutch reform. Prime Minister, theologian, activist, had high regard for the Catholic understanding of natural law. I think that would surprise a lot of people. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I'm not
1: an expert on Kuiper, but my understanding when he was writing, uh, or when he was living his you know, larger-than-life life, yeah. as uh, you mentioned, his, his political uh, appointment, he was a huge cultural figure. Uh, this was the, the, the beginning of the great encyclicals right. of Catholic social thought, mm-hmm. uh, beginning with Leo. Uh, and so I think he was seeing, especially in Rerum Novorum, which is the, the, really the first modern Catholic social thought encyclical, yep. uh, probably resonated with his, uh, his reformed idea of s- sphere sovereignty, yeah. So I, th- I think he saw a kind of kindred spirit yeah. in, in, in that work.
0: Yeah, I think that, I think that's uh, remarkable. And uh, there are many people in the Reformed tradition who may not realize that uh, a, t- a titanic figure like Kuiper actually thought the Catholic Church had been ahead of uh, the Protestant tradition in developing okay. in this area. Um, you mentioned earlier one of the f- uh, fears that Protestant theologians have about natural law and natural theology is uh what they call the noetic consequences of sin yeah that somehow the fall has so blinded uh human conscience uh human reason even that you cannot trust it to draw the proper conclusions about God or about ethics yeah um Aquinas understood. So. Oh, absolutely! And this is one of the things people yeah. they think Aquinas didn't know about the noetic consequences. Oh, in, of fact, sin. in fact, that's why he says we need special revelation. <laughs> right?
1: And yeah, I mean, it's it, it it's it, it is remarkable. He he did not think that the in a way he was not thinking of natural law the way we think of it at least in terms of, of modern moral debates, as like, oh, this is the way we try to convince our secular friends by coming up with a, kind of a neutral Wait, No, for him, it was obvious that every civilization in the history of human, humanity uh, was, in one way or another... Uh, governed by the natural law, now th- of course, their human law comes out differently because of custom and corruption and things like that, mm-hmm. and th- that 's what I think Protestants would refer to as the noetic effects of sin, but remember the Bible itself has incidents where the natural law is presupposed uh, Why did cain uh, why was it why did Cain know it was wrong to kill Abel? Yeah. there was no m- mosaic yeah, law yeah. uh, Nathan. You know, gave that wonderful illustration to David when he uh, had committed adultery at the sheep and set Uriah the Hittite to the front lines. Jesus said, Would a father give a stone to his child if he asked for a loaf
0: of bread? Right.
1: Right. That's all kind of appealing to what people already know.
0: Inherently know, yeah. 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 Um, do you see. Uh, a, con- uh, a- there was a—Arvin Voss was a Reformed theologian, I believe, or philosopher, who actually did a study of uh, Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin. Yeah. And uh, how close they are in some of these areas. That book had a huge influence on me. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay, I, 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 me too. So. Fact, fact, fact,
1: uh, m- <laughs> my book, uh, Never Doubt Thomas, my chapter, on Natural Law, Natural Theology, as I say in one of the end notes, is deeply indebted to— <laughs> Voss's work, okay. and I finally read the book. It's been out of print for a while. I and know he's he, as of, I, I think he's still alive. But about a decade ago, I I emailed him, and he had the last copies of his own book because the, when the publisher had to, out of print, he bought them for like fifty cents each. Yeah, yeah right. And, and so I bought a copy and finally read it, and it <laughs> and that's what kind of was a catalyst for me thinking more and more about how far apart how not far apart Protestants and catholics really are
0: well the fact that it's out of print indicates to me that people are not taking it as seriously as i thought they should yeah what do you make of that
1: i don't know i mean it's publishing world's kind of a unusual but that's actually not a bad idea that uh you know a press should bring that back And, and if he's still alive he should I maybe write a Reflections yeah, uh, chapter, that would it's, it's great. a great
0: book. It is. And again, uh, was very hopeful uh, when I read it. It also gave me encouragement, thinking that um, Catholics and non-Catholics, non-Catholic Christians, would maybe come closer together in working through some of these issues. Do you see that going on anywhere now? I think, it, I think you see it... Uh, at least
1: uh, among intellectuals. Uh, I think most ordinary churchgoers in both the evangelical and Catholic worlds, um, I, I think in the evangelical world, there is... N- I, I don't detect the kind of skepticism about natural law than, let, let's let say, maybe that one encounter 20, 30 years ago. But, mm-hmm. but I think uh, among intellectuals, among uh, theologians, philosophers from the different traditions, there's a lot more interaction than there was back you know a century ago and that's probably a lot to do with uh the diminishing influence of christian thought on the culture and so one thing it's forced people to to, yeah to come together read each other and uh rely on uh writings that one would have never imagined relying on a century ago
0: yeah yeah Well, Frank, thanks. Uh, Always good talking with you, and I appreciate you joining me here at Acton University again. Thanks for having me. Dr. Frank Beckwith, I'm Al Cresta.